Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast today. Who's to blame for back-to-school issues? And is Adele culturally appropriating? All of that is coming up. Let's get to it. COVID is all about uncertainty. And it is no surprise because it is about uncertainty, because our understanding of COVID, the science about it, we get a new report every day about it's, you know, it's this way, that way, you know, how does it transmit? Because it is so uncertain, it's not surprising that parents feel uncertainty as we close in on the beginning of the new school year. But as we get closer and closer to start time, that uncertainty should now begin to go away as we get more concrete science about short-term impacts, about we know about what's going to happen in schools. We know what the numbers are, 112, 112 cases. Think about our population. Think about how we have flattened the curve. In our next segment, in our first two segments, we're going to get into some real truth about what's going on in the education system. Doug Ford, we have just heard now, had a quiet tour of a school in the Kensington Market area this morning. The Minister of Education was with him. Dr. Williams was with him. And after he was finished, uh, the Premier issued this uh, statement saying he wants to thank the hundreds of staff and all the parents who worked throughout the summer to help implement the safest and most most cautious back-to-school plan in the country. That is Doug Ford in a statement this morning following what he had to say yesterday about a possible second wave. What will happen with the schools, Doug Ford? They're down. They're done. Bang. Closed. That is Doug Ford yesterday saying he will not hesitate to close down again if the numbers go back up. The Canadian press is now reporting that the Ontario Public School Board Association president, Kathy Abraham, is confirming that indeed there will be collapsed classes this fall. What does that mean? That means because there are so many parents so concerned about back to school who have been saying to school boards, "Mm, thank you, no thank you, we're keeping the kids at home. That means fewer students, which you would think, well, now that'll solve things, right? Because now we have fewer students and now we're going to get those class sizes down. Wrong! Wrong! Because the provincial government mandates class sizes and those remain the same. And because they remain the same, now we're going to have to collapse the classes together. So now, you know, a grade five and a grade six are going to be together because you got to get the numbers up. Asked about this yesterday, the premier said he didn't really know about it. Possible. But instead, the premier took time to say this kind of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm begging now. He's begging. There is a lot of blame to go around on our back-to-school plan. And I'm going to take you through where some of it lies. Because, like everything, it's not black and white. It's not all one side's fault. But here in Ontario, parents are now have a weird deja vu. Because now, once again, here we're having a conversation where we're asked to believe one side or the other. Who do we believe? Do we believe... Doug Ford, who is begging? I'm, I'm, I'm begging now. Do we believe Doug Ford, who is begging the teachers' unions? 
or do we believe the unions who respond this way? Here's Harvey Bischoff of the Ontario Secondary Teachers Federation. I don't know why he's pleading with us. I sent the first letter on March the 12th to the Minister of Education, the very day that school closures were were announced, saying that we are prepared to be cooperative and to work with the government to make schools safe and effective. They have shut us out at every turn. They've refused to collaborate. They've refused to consult. They even excluded us from technical briefings over the last uh, number of weeks, something no government in my my experience has ever done uh, in some sort of uh, fit of petulance, it would seem. So we're more than prepared to work with them, um, but we need to have a real dialogue. That is Harvey Bischoff of the OSSTF saying there needs to be a real dialogue. And hey, you didn't consult with us. You didn't talk with us. Now you can say, well, who's being petulant now? You could point your finger right back at the union. But the fact of the matter is that in this province, there is a long-running dispute between government, any government, and the unions. Doug Ford says that. He said that yesterday. doesn't matter what premier it's been. They've all had troubles with the unions. Yeah, no kidding. So you know what you do? You know what you do, Doug Ford? Is you make sure that they're on side. Why was the union not brought on side? So that the government can say, listen. We consulted with you all the way along. Here again is Doug Ford on Monday. I don't know why he's pleading with us. Create the safest environment we possibly can for everyone. And the teachers unions just want to fight. They want to fight with everyone. I don't want to fight with you. I want your cooperation like every single person in this country has been cooperating except the teachers unions. And I'm pleased, the teachers listening, I love you. You're going to do a great job. I, I totally differentiate between the two. It's These people are going to be heroes, and these people want to cause trouble. I don't want to fight. Simple. I want to get along. As Doug Ford yesterday, I just want to get along. In response, the unions say, well, we can get along a lot better if you would follow the recommendations in your own report which is keep class sizes small, which is not happening in the elementary grades. Same class sizes as before. All of this, of course, leads to so much politics, does it not? As you can see, there is blame on both sides. Bad communication, bad outreach from the Ford government, unions and transigents, and a willingness to fight I mean, they were fighting so much in February. Yeah, sure, we all got along for a little bit when the pandemic first hit, but here we are, right back where we were. And then, into the middle of it, more politics. Here is the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party, Stephen Del Duca, on the front lawn of Queen's Park this morning. Doug Ford has dropped the ball to plan adequately for a safe return to school. And he's left families and everyone working on the front lines in education in the dark for far too long. So Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals have created a website encouraging you to share your story, especially teachers. Share your story. Are you concerned about your work environment? Well, let the Liberals know. Except, oh look, right here on the submit page, There is this. 
consent button, consent to, I understand that by submitting my contact information, I may hear from the Ontario Liberal Party from time to time. Oh, wait a minute. Is this about collecting real information? Or is it about establishing a future voters list, Mr. Del Duca? How is this not just a data mining? Mm-hmm. So we'd be, we'd be happy to provide it. In fact, we intend to provide the information to the government. I sincerely hope that they will listen. In fact, let me just point out, the day that I launched our plan for a safe reopening of schools several days before Doug Ford launched his, I said that day, I say today, I wish as a parent that Doug Ford would steal my plan. Steal my plan! Mr. Del Duca, as you may have noticed, did not answer the question. That question there from Brian Lilly. How is this not just a data mining exercise? Just give me your name, your number, your contact information. You know, you upset with the government? Oh, well, we'll pass that information along. So into all of this, more politics and us as parents. We're on the sidelines. We're trying to figure it all out. And I'll tell you what I've figured out. I've figured out as a parent that the kids, they need to go back to school. This needs to happen. Each family will make their own decision. But for me, the importance, the mental health aspect, just to be able to get back to some level of normalcy. And what, who do I put my faith in? Well, this is the real problem we have in Ontario, is we're going to get these back and forths. Sure, in Ontario, it is as old as the hills. The teachers' union say one thing, the provincial government, regardless what it is, says the other, and parents are asked to choose to try and figure out where the truth is. Well, in a pandemic, the truth is supposed to be science. Science! And for that... We have someone in charge, do we not? Someone who is in charge of the science. That is, of course, Dr. David Williams, the great communicator. So let's get back to the doctor. Our information, Doc, Dad. is it safe? Our information, Dad, this time says it is safe, but... It's safe if you do infection prevention control. If you seek to do some distancing, if you can't, wear masking. If you can't do that for some reason, do something different. If you're ill, stay at home. All those things we said. It's not just a one magic button. Okay, it's not a magic button, but, oh, man, I wish I had some kind of magic button that I could press every time the doctor talked and it would translate. Can I get a Google Translate on the doctor? Can I? I mean, I'm begging you. I'm Doug Ford begging you. I'm, I'm, I'm begging now. I'm just begging for the doctor to be able to make it a little clearer, because I think if we could have some communication for the doctor that, that could cut through it, I mean, I think this is what other provinces have, right? They have medical officers of health who could just say, no, it's good. And I think parents would feel a lot better. We don't have that. And now, instead, we're going to have this coming up. I put this question to Harvey Bischoff of the OSSTF. Remember him? He's in charge of these, the union leader, high school teachers. So, you know, th- there's not an issue really about class size there because they're going to be in cohorts. But obviously there are still teachers with concerns. So what's going to happen? 
Are the teachers going to go back? Are the teachers actually going to be in the classroom? Well, Harvey says he's not going to advise his members not to go back, but then listen to this. Every individual worker has a right to refuse unsafe work if they have an objective reason to believe that their workplace is is presenting an unacceptable risk. And so in some cases, I have no doubt that we will have individual work refusals under those circumstances. That is Harvey Bischoff of the OSSTF. Some teachers will just simply refuse. When we come back on the Alan Carter radio program, your turn, your chance. Parents, teachers, especially if teachers, if you're out there and you're listening to this, I'd love your perspective, but parents especially, trying to figure out whether or not the kids should go back. You're caught in the middle again. You're being asked who to believe. Who do you believe? I'll bring you for- a couple of peaches for that great, great question. I got a whole <laughs> basket of them here. Thank you, Doug. We continue to discuss the back-to-school issue here in Ontario, trying to get some of your perspective, especially from parents and from teachers, after Doug Ford yesterday said, well, listen, teachers come up to me and they say, I am embarrassed about my union. I'm embarrassed. Is that accurate? Do you think that is something that is really happening in the province? And Doug Ford has this message. I'm, I'm, I'm begging now. He's begging that you call 416-870-6400 and add your voice to this conversation. So let's get to it. Line one, Anthony's a teacher. Are you embarrassed by your union tactics? I'm not necessarily a union person at heart, but at this point I have to say that the part of the message that we have to listen to is what they're saying about the government's own records. Uh, in regards to um, what they suggested with class size. In the report that came from Sick Kids and reports that have come from other places, they have highlighted in particular how important that social distancing is within the classroom. So this is uh, the government's own information. They keep pointing back to this record saying this is the best thing we have from our health professionals. But in there, they highlighted it specifically. We need that proximity. And just the other morning on this very um, radio station, you had one of the contributors to that report on, and he spoke very eloquently about the fact that the government right now is cherry-picking and they're choosing to take that part out of it, that the proximity was really needed. And now, Anthony, really- you're going back to, to work in, in the next couple of weeks? You'll go back into the classrooms? Well, I'll go back into the classrooms, but I understand the risk that's happening in there. Nobody, it doesn't matter what your profession is, nobody wants to be in a, in a workplace environment that's not good. For teachers, for students, for families alike, remember, if anything is coming within those, that classroom, it could go further into uh, families as those children go home. And nobody can come along and tell you that there's a no-risk situation, that there's never a chance that anything's going to happen. But at the same time, there's no need to make the situation more difficult than it needs to be. And this is a funding situation. We've created a situation right now in which we're saying that children need to do certain things within condominium lobbies, in malls outside in in the general public. We have certain restrictions for them there that are more restrictive than they would be in a class 
Okay, Anthony, I'm I'm just going to cut you off because I, I do want to get to some other calls. But uh, you know, as a teacher, I just you know I I, I want you to uh, stay safe, and I, I really appreciate you calling uh, and sharing your perspective. Thank you. Jim is on line two, and Jim, uh, my notes here say that you are an administrator at a GTA school board. Yeah, I'm a school principal. Uh, and how do you feel about uh, going back into schools and being there with the kids? I think the narrative is a little overly simplistic that teachers don't want to work. I mean, I it's a PA day out here, and the teachers are in trying to get things ready, but there's such a lack of clarity about what does the one-meter distancing look like. Um, rooms have been set up, but in an older building like mine, um, if a child simply just turns his chair, they're going to be front and center with another kid, and there's no longer a meter. So how do you ensure the one-meter distancing? Like, who's actually going to enforce that? Um, so I get the teacher's concerns. Um, as a principal, I'm concerned. I'm sending my kids back to school. And in a lot of the schools where I'm at, they, they are older buildings. The square footage isn't there yet. We're putting 20 to 25 kids in these, these rooms and hoping for the best. Uh, Jim, you, you say your kids are going back into the system. If you were to advise the Ford government, which just seems to be unable to quell this growing concern, what would you advise the government to say? I, you know what? You're right. Like I've got skin in the game because my kids will be in school. Um, I think to the government, I think they need to listen to parents and the teachers. Um, unfortunately, we've had five months of this, and it seems like everything came together in the last 10 days to quickly get things ready. Um, there, there should have been a better, you know, cogent plan about how we were going to do this. They could have thought this through and said, you know, when we reopen in, say, the next month or two, we're going to do the following steps. None of that's happened. So a lot of these buildings, in talking to my fellow administrators, were rushing to implement things with, with some guidance, but there seems to be a lot of interpretation of what can happen at the school, school level and individual boards. What's going to happen in the fall? I, to be honest, I, I hope for the best. I think if kids mask and we, we keep our numbers um, at a safe number, again, that seems, it, it's all over the place, whether it's 20 or 15. Um, it's going to be a lot about the hand hygiene, the routines. School is going to look very different than what parents um, left it in the spring. Uh, where we're starting now, it's going to be uh, a much different picture, and I think kids will share that when they get home. But my hope is kids come home and the whole mental health piece, being with their friends, just create some normalcy for all of our kids. So I'm hoping for the best, and I think if we stay on top of it, that's sort of what the result will be. Jim, great call. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your perspective, and please stay safe. Take care. Thank you. Just to sum up here, I will say I am in Jim's boat there, the principal you just heard from. I got kids going into the system. I got skin in the game. And the mental health aspect is more important. And weighing the science and what we know, my kids at least, are going back. The social media world is aflame with a new controversy, all featuring... Adele. Thank you, Adele. Thank you. Hello from the other side to you, too. Adele is facing accusations of cultural appropriation 
after sharing a picture on Instagram that showed her wearing a traditional African hairstyle. She posted this picture to her Instagram page on Sunday as she marked the cancelled Notting Hill Carnival in London, England. She wrote, Happy what would be Notting Hill Carnival, my beloved London. The Notting Hill Carnival is a uh, festival, a celebration that dates back to the 60s, celebrating Caribbean culture. Now, in the photograph, the 32-year-old singer is wearing a string bikini decorated with the Jamaican flag, and she has her hair in Bantu knots. Uh, I'll try and describe that to you. They're small, coiled buns on the top of her head, series of them, and Bantu knots are typically associated with people of African descent. Now, after this photo was shared, suddenly there was a conversation about whether or not Adele was guilty of cultural appropriation. Now, just to give you a perspective, cultural appropriation, as defined on Wikipedia, is an adoption of an element or elements of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. This can be controversial when members of a dominant culture appropriate from disadvantaged minority cultures. In the case of Adele, there have been people of color who have said, absolutely, celebrate. There have been others who have said, this is not appropriate. To get some more perspective on this, I am pleased to welcome back to the program B. Kwame, who is a writer and co-host of the program Cultured, which can be heard on this radio station on the weekends. Hi, B. Hi, how are you? I'm well. What do you think of what Adele posted in terms of her hairstyle? Well, you know, personally, I, I don't think the style is very fitting for her, so I was a bit shocked. I didn't even know who it was when I saw the photo before I realized it was Adele. Um but you know it all of the discussion around this has really shown just how multi-layered the the discussion and conversation around cultural appropriation really is because as you mentioned there across the spectrum there are so many different thoughts on is this more appreciation or is this something more negative and appropriation so it's it's very multi-layered your first impression when you saw the picture my first, but I was I was confused. I was very confused at who was this white woman with bantu knots and and a Jamaican flag bikini. Then I realized it was Adele. Then I I you know read the caption and understood the caption to see what she was referencing. And before I could even feel any feelings of either wow that's great that she's appreciating the culture or wow this is horrible that she's appropriating. I was just extremely confused. So it, it took me a minute to kind of get my bearings to figure out what exactly was happening. And, and by that point, all of the discussion had been raging. So then it was a matter of uh, just kind of seeing what folks were saying about it, both Jamaicans in Jamaica, um, Brits, what they were saying about it, people throughout the diaspora. There's so many, so many different thoughts. 
It was interesting that, that one of the comments was, you know, how is it that a, a portion of people are outraged when Jamaicans themselves, and, you know, the person was purporting to speak for Jamaicans as a whole, I suppose, mm-hmm. where, you know, it was like Jamaicans aren't upset about it. Why is it that anyone else should be allowed to be upset? Well, and even with that, I would say that there are Jamaicans who are upset with it. So it just goes to show that no one group of people is a monolith, and you can't put, uh, you know, one blanket assumption on any one group of of people. So, yes, there were Jamaicans who saw this as appreciation, saying, oh, you know, basically, Adele's cool. We know she means well. Uh, You know, Adele is kind of for the culture. Uh, This is something she's showing to appreciate Jamaica, and we are proud to see somebody, you know, being kind of an ambassador to to the culture. Then you have other folks, uh, Jamaicans as well, who felt that this was something very offensive and that she could show her appreciation for the culture without uh, kind of appropriating such very, um, you know, very prominent aspects like, like a hairstyle. She could have had her hair the way she normally has her hair and still be just as appreciative. And, I, you know, everybody is allowed to feel the way they feel. And, and even me, I am of Jamaican descent. My parents are Jamaican, but I was born and raised in Canada. So there's even, you know, another layer there to what I feel I, I can kind of claim on this discussion. But hyper visibility of the culture, we don't necessarily need ambassadors. We don't need Adele to be an ambassador for Jamaican culture because Jamaican culture is so prominent around the world. So for if I could sit in a room with Jamaicans who felt that this was something that we needed, that Jamaica needed, I would ask why. That just seems very, very silly to me. And it seems that it, it just shows kind of the hold that colonialism still has over us when we feel that we need to have a white British woman put on a Jamaican flag bikini to show that Jamaica is great. Jamaica is great without that. So uh, those are questions that I would have even within kind of the intra-community conversations if I were able to have them. I'm speaking with B. Kwame, who is a writer and co-host of the radio program Cultured, which can be heard on Global News Radio on the weekends. And B, isn't it important to take into uh, the, the context here and to put that into play? Uh, this is uh, a festival. I read a little bit about it. I, I didn't know about it before, this Notting Hill Festival, which mm-hmm. uh, w- w- is a celebration uh, of Caribbean uh, culture. So I, to put it into a Toronto perspective, you know, if, if we were to say... You know, at Caravana, you know, the, the colorful parades. And, mm-hmm. and if there was, you know, a white celebrity who was to don what would be traditionally seen as something worn by a person of color in that parade, is that a problem? Even that, that's another discussion that is had within the Caribbean community, even here in Toronto about that. I think overall, the majority of folks that I at least have spoken to when we have these discussions feel that it, it that's that's a way to appreciate it's it's not necessarily going to be looked at as a negative if you are a white person who uh, decides to play mass and, and wear the costume because i mean there are white caribbean folks who this is part of their culture as well even if it's not part of their uh, racial history because throughout the caribbean and if we look at um, where caravana came from if we look at notting hill this is based out of rebellion. This is a celebration, yes, but the history is based out of a rebellion and a pushback against, uh, you know, in the history of enslavement and, and colonial forces. So even though now we look at it like it's a great party and everybody gets to come together and we get to celebrate, 
that's kind of a newer and more modern layer um, and complexity to what carnival actually means. So that's not to say that Adele or, or anybody else who is not of Caribbean descent can't participate. I think that you also need to think about participating respectfully. I, I think about it, you know, if I were, say, attending a, a, a festival from another culture or a wedding of friends who are part of another culture, do I wear cultural dress? Do I... Do I do certain things just to fit in with everybody else, or do I find a way to respectfully participate? So those are questions that I ask myself when doing things outside of my own culture. And I think that people don't necessarily ask the same questions. I think that there's this idea that Caribbean culture is is for everybody, and we're just jolly and happy, and we want everybody to feel great. So come on in and do the exact same thing we're doing. But I think people also need to think about respectfully participating in a culture that is not their own. And I feel that those are the issues that people have had with Adele and, and this pushback to especially her wearing the Bantu knots. That's kind of taking it a step beyond the, the respect for the culture and making it almost like a costume. And one other thing that I also think about is black women get judged for wearing hairstyles like Adele did. So it's very off-putting to me as a black woman to see her wearing a hairstyle that I would get judged for, uh, you know, if I was working in a corporate office or something of that nature, and Adele is, is celebrated for it. So there are a lot of different complexities here when it comes to what pieces of culture do we borrow, especially when that culture is not our own, and, and what does it mean to be respectful in that space? I, I, I really take your point there. I think it's such an important one uh, when, when you say costume that the, you mm-hmm. know that, that perhaps that is the line because it is it is so easy for costume to slip into caricature. And we know, you know, the, the history of blackface. We know the history of, mm-hmm. you know, of white people, especially appropriating uh, black costumes as a way to denigrate and dehumanize. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so obviously that's part of it. But there is going to be an an element out there, B, uh, who are going to say that this is just another example of a hypersensitivity that is driving us apart as people. Definitely. And I mean, there were Jamaicans who were saying that, oh, I don't, I don't understand why everybody's so sensitive. Uh, nobody can have fun anymore because, you know, we're all up in arms about Adele just having a good time. And, you know, there were people talking about, oh, cancel culture added again. Adele's not getting canceled for this. Uh, you know, Adele is Adele. We still love her. Most of this came out of jokes, just kind of, you know, cracking innocent jokes about her being embedded in Jamaican culture and, and renaming different songs of hers in, in Patwa and all those types of things. A lot of people were just having fun with this. So I think the, the sensitivity, I'm seeing it happen in, in both ways. I'm seeing it, yes, where people might think that any criticism against Adele is, is very sensitive, but I'm seeing other people on the other side use this as a moment to say, oh, there they go again. People just can't have a good time. Now we're, now we're canceling Adele. And it's like, hold on, everybody. These conversations, especially when they kind of germinate on social media, get to a lot of hyperbole and get to this weird, weird abyss that doesn't really exist once we take those conversations off of social media and we're able to put more nuance and context around them. So I think the sensitivities do exist, but it depends on the context of where we're having the conversation. B. Kwame, writer and co-host of the program Cultured, which can be heard on Global News Radio. Always great to have you on the program. I really value your perspective. Thank you so much, B. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, we are coming up to 1 o'clock, and you know what that means. Oh, goodness gracious me, it's time to break out the peaches. 
if we can get a good question, can we get a good question to Doug Ford? Because I'll bring you a couple of peaches for that great, great question. I got a whole basket of them here. He's got a whole basket of them right there. He's just standing by. Just I, sometimes I think that he'd just like to huck them at reporters. Of course, they're not in the room, so you can't do that anymore. You can't just chuck a ripe peach. Give your but, head a shake. Well, sometimes I can sense, you know, that, that the premier gets a little steamed about stuff. And he was like that yesterday as he really went off on teachers' unions. And I'm kind of expecting some of the same. Here's the thing to watch for in the press conference today. This just coming out in the last hour. We broke the news here on Global News Radio, brought it to you. Uh, this uh, report from the Canadian Press that says that the head of the School Board Association says, yes, indeed, they're going to collapse classes, which means that fewer kids are going to be in class going back to school because so many parents are saying, I don't think so. So there's going to be fewer kids in class, but that is not going to result in smaller class sizes because of provincial mandates on class sizes. It just means that maybe grades three and four and five all squished together, same number of students in the same room. The premier is going to have to answer questions about that. I think it's a good plan. He thinks it's a good plan, though. So we have that. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays starting at noon.